Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. One of the great joys of being at uh, Kentucky Humanities and being in the position that I am and beginning this uh, podcast about a year and a half ago now um, is learning so much about uh, the Commonwealth, the state uh, where I was born and raised uh, and thought I knew a little bit about, and that's just uh, the way I think of of most Kentuckians uh, a little bit about, Uh, but there's so much. And uh, our guest today is Patrick Lewis from the Kentucky Historical Society, who's Special expertise uh, is in the uh, is in the Civil War era, but he does a lot of other things for KHS, and we'll we'll maybe try to squeeze in uh, some of those. As a member of our Speakers Bureau, uh, which by the way is uh, uh, available for you to look at at uh, kyhumanities.org, you can uh, just click on the program Speakers Bureau. You can read about uh, Patrick and about uh, 55 or 60 other uh, Speakers Bureau participants that are available to you across the state of Kentucky. Uh, But one of those things that uh, I have really enjoyed is learning more about um, Kentucky history that I did not ever learn in school or haven't uh, read uh, since school, and that's been a long, long time ago. Uh, I think it's the, the uncovered or undiscovered stories, the little stories that sometimes uh, have a lot of significance. And Patrick, uh, I, I must tell you that I'm, I'm reading now uh, The Soul of America, John Meacham's uh, new book. Uh, John Meacham uh, will be in Lexington uh, for a, a lecture. But in, in reading the um, often forgotten or those smaller stories of all of the the historians that uh, that he writes about in the Soul of America from uh, well before the Civil War right up through uh, modern times is just sometimes fascinating and and uh, you as a historian uh, must be fascinated every day or is it uh, does it become work for you oh no it's it's an everyday fascination but you're exactly right and those are the stories that get people engaged with history those were the the stories about my family or my community that i grew up in 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 trig county um that that made me really want to to want to understand the bigger context and the bigger picture for those stories that i'd been told you know and the problem is of course though that uh the the ways that that our historical institutions our libraries and our archives and our historical societies have collected uh, papers and manuscripts and, and, and museum collections have, have often focused on what somebody uh, thought was more important uh, or the, the, the more influential individuals. And so we've, we've lost so much of that rich texture of everyday life in the past. And, and that's really what I'm passionate about finding uh, and, and, and throwing out there for, for people to chew on and really get, get back engaged with, with the stories of their state and their community. I've had uh, conversations with your colleague Stuart Sanders uh, about uh, the the desire for you, for historians, for educators, uh, for many others, uh, uh, people that may not have a background in history but love reading about history, um, that we've sort of lost our our way when it comes to teaching history. I I run into uh, a lot of uh, folks uh, that 
that know that uh, we're not teaching Kentucky history uh, as much as we should in some schools. Uh, it's become an elective in some school systems in Kentucky. And, and uh, certainly when I was in school, I don't know about you, it was part of the curriculum and it was being taught. And, and uh, the, the, it's sort of something that's lost that we all need to work hard on reviving. No, I think you're exactly right. And, you know, Kentucky used to be such a a fantastic place for practicing state and local history. And, you know, you think about uh, organizations like KHS that I work for or like uh, the work that the UK History Department did. That was that was at the same time. Uh, a, a nationally recognized program in Southern history that was churning out some of the, the most influential PhDs uh, uh, anywhere in the country, but at the same time had this deep commitment through Dr. Clark and Hamilton Taft, and we just, we just go and, and rattle off the names, um, to, to collecting local stories and telling local stories and inspiring those undergraduates that they were teaching who came through the University of Kentucky to go back into their communities. And I can't tell you how many people I've met who are now doctors and lawyers and, and, and whatever they are, wherever they are, who have this deep and abiding love for Kentucky history that they got in those classrooms mm-hmm. that, that is just an experience. I don't think, uh, you know, certainly not our high school students and, and fewer and fewer of our, of our university students are getting that. Yeah. Uh, I just, a real quick story, I just ran into a, a, a wonderful uh, older gentleman uh, yesterday who was going to be on a television program in Cincinnati, and uh, we just happened, he asked me a question about about uh, Vietnam, and, and, and I just said, did, did, did you serve? And he said, I sure did, and he told me about, he went through law school first and then was uh, in the infantry, and, uh, uh, and, and, and he tells that story of his service to high school students. And I said to him, as I often hear from other Vietnam veterans, uh, especially, uh, what did they know about Vietnam? And he said, nothing. Yeah. He said, sadly, they they just come to it as a, in one way, maybe it's uh, great that it's an open book or, or a mm-hmm. blank page, mm-hmm. but still they just don't have any reference point to what uh, that was. And it hasn't been that long ago. Yeah, well that's, and that's, I, I find fascinating for myself even thinking about the that that rolling window of what we consider historical right where where it becomes current events and and where it becomes history right and where where about is that line and you think about it and good lord now we're 50 years on yeah. from vietnam and it just doesn't seem like it. Yeah. my perception 50 years ago was world yeah. war ii and that's now 75 <laughs> years ago yeah um and yeah but but you know these as you say this this is a time now where um where we can actually start as as a historical profession, as the humanities profession more broadly, to start to re-engage people and, and sort of get past all the, the big, I mean, the, 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 the big anger and, and, and the frustration and the, the feelings of betrayal that, that happen on all sides of, of particularly Vietnam, but you could, you could apply that to almost any historical topic. And now let's sit down and let's review that and let's look at the mm-hmm. art and the literature that came out of that. Let's look at the history. Let's look at the events. Let's look at the protests. Let's look at the service and the sacrifice in all those different communities. We can actually start to do that now. Yeah. Well, there are uh, those stories that, that you like to tell and that you've worked on. And for our Speakers Bureau, uh, let's talk about a couple of those that you're interested in, in telling. And, I, and, and again, this is one of those stories that I was not familiar with at all. Uh, ben and Helen Buckner 
Tell us about uh, what you tell your audiences about uh, this couple. This is the quintessential Civil War Kentucky couple. It gets no more uh, house divided than, than Ben and Helen Buckner. Uh, I came upon them while I was a graduate student at UK. Um, I became very interested in the politics of Reconstruction uh, in Kentucky, the, the, the resistance among the majority of, of white Kentuckians to African Americans voting and participating in elections. Uh, and Ben Buckner uh, ended up uh, raising and leading a battalion of Kentucky State Militia here in Lexington that uh, for a few years in the 1870s uh, was, was, was intimidating violently, um, uh, shooting uh, black voters as they went out to, to political rallies and sometimes even uh, in the courthouse square uh, in, in, a, in a big election in 1871 um, after, after the election had taken place, the voting had taken place. So I was really fascinated by this this man, and, and how did he come uh, to be to be leading that that group of armed men? Um, he eventually then transitions out of the violent repression of civil rights into the the nonviolent and legalistic means of doing that. He's the one who defends. Uh, the poll tax in front of the Supreme Court for the first time, uh, the, 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 the first poll tax with, with racially discriminatory intent is passed in Lexington in 1873, and Ben Buckner uh, is the one who establishes that precedent that gets then replicated all over across the South for, for the next century. Um, so I wanted to look back further. Uh, and his wartime letters are, uh, are over here at UK. They're housed on campus. Uh, and uh, and the, the, the great irony of all of this is, considering his, his Reconstruction activities in the 1870s, he's a Union officer. Uh, he, he enlists in 1861, uh, helps raise the 20th Kentucky Infantry Regiment um, with the idea that, that, that slavery will best be preserved by remaining in the Union. Um, his father had, had known Abraham Lincoln uh, in the, the 1830s and 40s, uh, trusted him, didn't agree with his politics, but trusted him to, to keep the bargain uh, with the, the, the loyal slave states and not pursue any emancipation uh, strategies. And so uh, following the lead of Henry Clay and John Crittenden, the majority of white Kentuckians think that, that staying in the Union is the safer bet for Kentucky's economy. Uh, and society, which are all built around slavery. Of course, this all comes crashing down on, on them in 1863 and 1864. The fascinating piece about uh, his and Helen's relationship is, is that during the war years when he's away in the army, they're still engaged. She is an absolutely spitfire rebel from a, from a, a large landed pro-Confederate family uh, in, uh, in Clark County. And uh, and so the they, with a the, large number of uh, of slaves, of slaves indeed, yes, they they have um, not only doing you know livestock operations and, and raising uh, you know thoroughbreds and and and, and blooded cattle, but also uh, extending out into the mountains into into Estill County and operating iron furnaces and is this really well developed economic portfolio that, that that quite frankly shows in a little bit disturbing way the flexibility that slavery can have within a Kentucky economic system. But um, so, uh, and the Buckners are slave owners too, though on a smaller scale. They have a, a couple of domestic servants, but both both Ben and his father are lawyers. They're in town. They don't own land and that sort of thing. Um, 
But so in this this wartime correspondence where they're they're clearly on opposite sides of this conflict, sort of representing the whole of Kentucky, um, they they talk about politics and they talk about their relationship and they talk about uh, the balance between the two and what their household will look like in the future once they get married and what their family will look like. And you realize pretty quickly on reading this, um, and this comes out of a, a reading that, that Amy Taylor, who's now at the UK History Department, did of these letters a few years ago uh, before I got a hold of them. You you realize that that uh, their uh, their their understandings of their future household is wrapped up in this political metaphor of what they want the American state to be, and it's mm-hmm. fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, but then eventually, of course, with the, the the arrival of the Emancipation Proclamation and and the advent of African American recruitment uh, into the U.S. Army. Uh, the, the Buckner wants no part of serving in an integrated force, and he resigns. He makes up some excuse that gets him out of the army. He comes back home, um, gets elected to the state house in 1865, uh, helps uh, that Democratic majority there uh, sort of ease the transition into uh, into freedom, uh, which denies a lot of uh, uh, civil rights to African Americans. And then, of course, he's going to violently oppose them uh, later on in the decade. So when I give that talk, that's the big picture, um, big heavy history that I want I want people to get. I, I also understand that that one should also have a little bit of sugar to help the medicine go down. Um, and so you can really focus on this human relationship, and you can personify. And this gets to the the work that um, I, I particularly like to do. You can personify these really big, heavy national uh, issues about politics and race um, into this. This, this very relatable human relationship of these two young people in their 20s um, who are trying to think about uh, the life they want to build together at the same time as they're in the midst of a war that threatens and will ultimately undermine the foundations of the society that they wanted to build that life in. And that, that I feel like, is, is something that you can disagree with their politics. Um, and, and in fact, I think the vast majority of the people that I, I speak to do and, and probably should disagree with their politics. Um, but, but you understand that fear. Um, and that, that insecurity, and that's very relatable, and, and that, that's something that allows that story to sink into people a little bit better. Was the, uh, the argument that uh, you mentioned that uh, Buckner made, that Clay made, uh, about staying in the Union, was it purely... There had to be some ideological reasons, too, but it was an economic argument. It is fundamentally an economic argument. And there, there are some things within uh, the, the tradition of Whig political thought that Henry Clay passed down to Crittenden and passed down to Buckner that, yeah, they're, they are in there. But first and foremost, uh, it, it is an economic argument. And the most, the most straightforward one is the continuation of the Fugitive Slave Clause in the Constitution and the reinforced Fugitive Slave Law that had gotten passed in 1850. Um, which required that, that if slaves escaped across the Ohio River into Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, uh, law enforcement officials in those states had to assist Kentucky slave hunters in bringing them back, um, which, which effectively put the border of freedom a few hundred miles further north all the way in Canada. If, if Kentucky joins the Confederacy, uh, then, then Canada is the Ohio River, hmm. um, and every enslaved person in Kentucky will know it, um, and, and, and commerce will collapse. Agriculture will collapse. Um, there were, there were also some, some fears about, 
what would Kentucky's role be in a confederacy um, that was based on cotton when, when Kentucky grew hardly none? Um, the hemp economy uh, is supported by strong protective tariffs, which Clay, of course, had always uh, supported and defended. Um, but, uh, but of course, the, one of the arguments the Confederates are making is that, is that the federal tariff structure is discriminatory to cotton, and so they're going to have a completely different regulatory state. Uh, and, uh, and so Kentuckians are afraid that economically their, their chief cash crops here in the bluegrass won't be able to compete on the market. And even if the slaves don't run away, the, the goods that the slaves are producing won't be profitable, and you'll have to sell them off anyway. So Kentuckians are very uneasy about joining this Confederacy. What do we know about uh, the rest of their life, uh, Ben and Helen, and and uh, how they how they live together, and, and and especially the the operation that she inherited, uh, I would imagine, and 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 how the operation of the farming and the the iron furnaces and all of that. Uh, you know, and this is really quite fascinating. And I did a bunch of research on this that that did not make it into the book um, that uh, that I published through uh, through UPK. Um, but uh, they actually are, are continue to be a really fascinating study in how this this antebellum master class sort of navigates the end of slavery and the, the loss of all that investment in, in human property. Um, they start to Buckner starts to sell off her family's assets. Mm-hmm. He sells off um, some of the iron furnaces in, in early in in '66. Off to to eventually some uh, some northeastern interests um, who who build a very large uh, and modern iron furnace in Estill County that's now still the ruins of it are in the Daniel Boone yeah. National Forest. Mm-hmm. Um, he uh, manages to sort of uh, plug into uh, the 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 old bluegrass aristocracy that was moving into the law that was moving into finance that was moving into railroad construction. Uh, he he becomes law partners with WCP Breckenridge, um, which is a, a name that carries a lot of weight in the, the bluegrass, who of course will become the the, the uh, legislative uh, star of, of the Kentucky Democratic Party in the 1880s and 90s. Um, Buckner himself becomes a judge. Uh, he gets appointed to the, a number of, of different benches here in, in the bluegrass. Eventually moves to Louisville and is in private practice uh, advocating for railroads, mm-hmm. um, which is very lucrative. The, mm-hmm. the, the president of the LNN gives Buckner his own private car mm-hmm. um, on occasion, so, so that, that goes well for them. Um, and, and then he becomes a trustee of UK. Uh, and, and one of the, the sort of original ones in the, uh, the early 1880s that, that really starts to modernize and create the campus that we see today. The main building that, that houses the university's administration right now yeah. um, was built uh, through Buckner's efforts. Hmm. Um, he, he made a, a, an impassioned speech before the legislature to argue for, for state funding to build that building. Uh, and so the, the shell of it anyway um, is 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 a creation of Ben Buckner. It's this silent monument that I always looked at when I after I found that research yeah. nugget. I walked by there and sure. um, actually the the first research seminar in graduate school where I first started to write about Buckner. I had it met in mm. that building. I didn't know that at the time. Yeah, uh, that connection. Well, that's pretty fascinating. Uh, the other uh, the other talk that you are available to do. Uh, is titled Refugees Searching for an Untold Civil War Kentucky. So tell us about that. Yeah, so this that, that talk I've been doing for, for a number of years now, and it really has evolved. Uh, and, you know, talking about 
the ways that that history impacts our our present today. This this talk really evolved as I was reading the news and following current events. And originally, it had started out as as sort of this these interesting few tales that I had come across of um, of some individuals who had not made it into into sort of mainstream uh, histories of of the Civil War era. Um, but but ultimately, I realized as I as I was going out and giving this talk that. Uh, they all had to do with people being dislocated uh, through the course of the war, their houses being burned down, them being turned out, them being uh, thrown into, into to uncertain circumstances. And, and you could look at the different types of people and, uh, and the connections that they had, uh, the, the different races and genders, quite frankly, that they, that they were. Um, and that, that gave them much different paths to be able to, na to navigate um, the challenges that the war created. Uh, and, and so I, I wanted to throw that out there, and it's actually been really productive to spark uh, conversation uh, with the groups that I've, I've given this talk with. And, and, and I've, I've had some really valuable, for me, conversations um, with, with people you know, all across the Commonwealth um, who, who really start to, 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 again, empathize with these human stories uh, and, and draw some, some really straight and clear lines into the, the things that we see coming out of Syria and, and Iraq and elsewhere uh, in the newspaper. You mentioned uh, the University of Kentucky in the letters uh, from the Buckners, um, and I would imagine that besides UK, there are a number of, of other repositories around the state that, that are rich with, uh, with historical uh, information. If someone is just an amateur sleuth um, uh, interested in in family genealogy, which a lot of people are these days, what, what's your best advice on, uh, are there other stories, are there other small stories like this that, that uh, still could have an impact on uh, a historical reference in, in the state of Kentucky? Countless, countless. More than, more than I would have, have told you a few years ago. Um, so this, this comes out of my day-to-day my -day work at the Kentucky Historical Society. I'm the, the director of the Civil War Governors of Kentucky Digital Documentary Edition, which is an online collection of primary sources that have come out of uh, the archives from across the state. They've come out of KHS collections. They've come out of KDLA, the state archives. They've come out of the Filson in Louisville. They've uh, come out of uh, UK collections. They've come out of the State uh, Department for Military Affairs and the National Guard. Um, and, and we're still looking, actually. We've got an active search going on through Library of Congress and National Archives microfilm right now, looking for new things. Um, the title, though, is, is deceptive. Uh, we're using the office of the governor as a collecting point for these individual stories. Um, so there are five Civil War governors of Kentucky, three of them Union, two of them Confederate. Um, we, we collect... Name them for us. Oh, yes. Um, so Barai McGoffin uh, is the, the governor, is elected in 1859. Um, he is, he sort of oversees the secession crisis in Kentucky. He himself is a, is a, a Confederate sympathizer, uh, but, but to his credit, doesn't uh, push the state out of the Union. He wants to follow the will of the majority. Um, in the summer of 1862, though, he is forced out by the legislature uh, in something of a, of a coup. Um, and, uh, and a state senator by the name of James F. Robinson from Georgetown is put in in his place to serve out the last year of his term. And then uh, Tom Bramlett uh, from Adair County is elected in 1863 and serves to 67. On the Confederate side, uh, there's George W. Johnson from uh, Georgetown. 
um, who is the, the first uh, sort of Confederate governor and governs um, the, the southern tier of counties around Bowling Green um, through the first winter of the war. Um, but uh, after the Confederate Army is pushed out, he gets killed, actually, at the, the Battle of Shiloh, um, serving in a Confederate infantry regiment um, because he couldn't do much governing from, from West Tennessee. And, uh, and then after his death, Richard Hawes um, from Paris is, is elected to fill his spot. Uh, and his one uh, moment of glory is, is right before the Battle of Perryville being installed uh, and sworn in in the, the old state capital in Frankfurt. Uh, but the inaugural ball was canceled because a Union battery of artillery unlimbered across the river and started shelling the town. And the wow. Confederates had to get out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, uh, we, we're focusing on, on these five individuals because we think it's that their office, particularly the office of the, of the, the official governors, not the Confederate governors who are always on the road, um, are a great way to collect these people's individual stories from across the state. Because as you can imagine, it, as any of the horrible things that, that happen to, to people during war, if the armies come, if guerrillas come, uh, if, if droughts uh, hit, if, if crops fail, if livestock uh, are, are taken or killed by, by marauders or by one of the armies, um, as, as emancipation happens, right? Various forms of, of sort of devastation happen to, uh, to Kentuckians, and, and in their desperation, they, they, they turn to somebody, uh, and they, they write to Frankfurt, and they, they, they in these, these heart-rending letters that oftentimes are written in, in you know, their semi-literate hands with bad penmanship, this might be the only thing that these people have ever written, or they, they write it, or have somebody write it for them and make their mark, this might be the longest piece of writing that these people ever generate in their own voice. Um, they tell their stories. Listen, Governor, this is what happened to me and my family and my farm. Uh, and, and my son's away in the Army and I haven't heard from him. Um, I don't know what to do. Can you help? Um, and so we've got about 10,000 of those documents online right now that are, are fully uh, transcribed, keyword searchable, um, searchable by, by date and place of creation. Um, we're working to get more up every day. Um, we, uh, we put more uh, things online. Uh, we've got about probably about another 15,000 items mm, that are really? in some stage of production. Mm-hmm. Um, are they also uh, available for search by name? We're working on that. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So the problem right now is you're reliant on on how people spell their names, which is yeah, often inconsistent. Sure. And of course, in the 19th century, involves a lot mm-hmm. of abbreviations and mm-hmm. things like that. What we're doing now, uh, and we have been since last year, is working with a team of grad students, and we've got a federal grant to do this work. Um, grad students across the country are are researching these individuals. Um, every person uh, that appears within any of these documents. Mm-hmm. Um, and and are, are writing short biographies of them to the greatest extent that we can. For some people, we just can't find anything mm-hmm. else on them. But for the majority of people, we can at least mm-hmm. say they were a farmer in Barron County, and we can, mm-hmm. we can work from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, so that person will be highlighted within the text of that document. You can click on that person, uh, man, woman, mm-hmm. enslaved, free, all across the state and beyond, you know, mm-hmm. because there's this correspondence that happens across the country as, as people get spread out by the war. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can do that and so and read their biographies, and then we're socially networking all those people together. So each biography has a diagram that links you to other people that we've identified from that document and from other documents across the collection. So if a piece of paper um, 
you know, appears uh, with that person's name on it uh, at the Filson in Louisville, and another one is in KHS collections. Before, those could never talk to each other, but now we can link those up together and you can get a better sense of, of that person's complete life. Um, so we've got about, so I said we had 10,000 things fully transcribed. We've got about 900 of those fully annotated right now, which has given us around 9,000 uh, people and places and organizations that are linked. And tell listeners uh, how they can access that again. Yeah, it's discovery.civilwargovernors.org, um, and that's that's KHS website. Um, we also have on there a number of teaching materials that we have produced, um, pulling out some of these, these, these fascinating individual stories um, and, and working those up for classrooms at different scales. We've done some podcasts, we've done some audio, we've done some visual learning lessons. Um, all of that is on that site as well. Um, and, and so, yeah, it's, it's really sort of a one-stop shop that, that allows you to explore on your own. If you've got a genealogical question, if you've got a family history question, get a, want to know what happened in your, in, your, in your county or in your little part of the county, in your town, um, during the war, you can, you can go in yeah. that way. Or you can take this sort of guided tour through the stuff that we've mm-hmm. created um, and sort of see some of the highlights of the ways that the war impacted people in, in again, uh, in, in ways that I would never have expected before I started doing that work. Well, that's uh, fascinating. It, it all is. Uh, we appreciate your uh, participation in our Kentucky Humanities Speakers Bureau and the talks that you give and the work that you're doing for the state. And I, I would imagine and hopefully uh, knock on some um, a particle board here. Uh, it'll keep you employed uh, at KHS for some time to come. It looks like, it sounds like you've got uh, some more work to do. We've got a lot of work ahead of us. Patrick Lewis, uh, thanks for uh, being here today on our Think Humanities podcast. Thank you. Think Humanities is a podcast from Kentucky Humanities and is a production of the University of Kentucky College of Arts and Sciences. This podcast was created at the Media Depot. Think Humanities is available at kyhumanities.org, iTunes, and SoundCloud. SoundCloud.